0: Amen. If you could make your way in and take a seat, take time to talk to one another after the service. So good to have you. Uh, some of you might have noticed that I came in with a sling on and I don't now. Uh, yeah, complete healing. Um, I actually uh, wore the sling at my wife's recommendation and because she's always right, I always do what she says. Um, all the women said amen. Can you believe that? Um, and basically it was because she felt like there would be those of you among us who see me without a sling who would think everything is fine and you come up and smack my arm or do something weird. So she said, wear the sling to protect it. It's doing really well. It's progressing, but uh, at this point in time I still can't do much with it. Uh, I thought I was actually doing much better until I talked to Kevin Ormsby, our drummer. And then uh, he asked me before the service, so how long are you or how long before you are intending to take your like your your really longer rest in life and i wasn't sure by that whether he meant retirement or he meant death <laughs> so i began to feel a little bit insecure there and thought maybe my arm's not doing as well as i thought it was so uh, i'm doing fine just don't hit me and leave me alone uh, <laughs> In the fall of 1911, a young farm boy from Elmira, New York, traveled about 125 miles to Rochester, New York, where he enrolled in what was called Rochester Bible Training School. He'd grown up on a small mom-and-pop farm in the southern tier. And by his own family's definition, he was considered a very simple young man who intended to equate everything in life back to his farming experiences, much like our brother, Tom Weber. Um, This young man struggled primarily with two things in life. One was that in the midst of uh, tense or stressful times, he would tend to actually faint and collapse. Uh, And so that began to be a little bit of a problem. Now, on the farm, it wasn't so much of a big deal. They would just pick him up and lay him on some other ground where it was dry and keep going with their work. But in Bible school, that didn't bode real well. Uh, And thankfully, God actually healed him of his uh, fainting problem. Um, His other challenge was that he wasn't a very good speaker. He had a hard time putting words together and making sense of it. In fact, one of his uh, teachers at Bible school said this, he's never going to be a preacher. He needs to find something else to do with his life. Well, that stumbling, bumbling young farm boy was Ivan Quay Spencer, also known as I.Q. Spencer. Uh, And although he was perhaps ill-suited for ministry, Ivan loved the presence of God more than anything else in life. And he spent many long hours alone praying and seeking God in the fullness of his presence. This is actually a quotation from a book that is written about him. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to read it when you get a chance. It's called... Ivan Spencer, Willow in the Wind. And this is what it says. At the close of a very difficult day of classes, Ivan wearily climbed the stairs to the prayer room, which had become more familiar to him than any other place. Here, moments seemed like hours, or sometimes hours seemed like moments, depending upon God's presence. Tonight, Ivan sensed God's presence from the moment his knees touched the floor. He raised his hands in jubilant praise, laughing and then weeping in the Spirit, as he abandoned himself to know God's purposes for his life. Slowly, his surroundings receded and he became conscious that the Spirit was etching pictures upon his mind, revelatory pictures which he sensed to be the Pentecostal movement in days to come. He saw groups and handfuls of Spirit-filled believers scattered throughout the world. God showed him that the purpose of this worldwide diffusion was to bear the light of the supernatural ministries that He had given them to people of their localities and to intercede for greater things for them. Next, he saw the movement grow in numbers while manifestations of supernatural power decreased. Then there came a sifting and testing time. God promised, but in that day I will take my people and discipline them and use them. This was followed by an awareness of a glorious outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, Ivan was confronted with large flaming red letters spelling REVIVAL. He jumped to his feet, blinking and rubbing his eyes, but wherever he looked that day and for days after, the flaming word was there, promising, challenging, proving that he had met with God. He had been called to revival ministry, and he knew it. He left the prayer room in the certainty of divine commission. And because of that young man, Elam Bible Institute, which is now Elam Bible Institute in college, was born in 1924 in Hornell, New York. And in 1933, Elam Missionary Assemblies, now known as Elam Fellowship, was also born, from which scores of men and women had been sent around the world bringing revival fires. This church, Family Life Church, is affiliated with Elam Fellowship, and I myself am ordained through Elam Fellowship. In fact, many people in our midst have been impacted by Elam by virtue of taking classes. In fact, if you're here and you've ever taken any class through Elam Bible Institute, would you just stand? So well, let me just see for a second. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. 20. That's 24 people just in this room. Thank you. You may be seated. Who have been touched by Elam in some way through their classes at Elam Bible Institute. That young man's prayer became a fulfillment of God's desire to bring revival fires around the world. Now, recognizing that was what God gave. Ivan Quay Spencer. How many of you here today have actually been on a missions trip to a different place around the world? Would you stand? 1, That's 47 just in this room. 47 people who have, because of that vision which God gave Ivan Quay Spencer, has been sent out of this church which is affiliated with the Elm Fellowship to touch the world. That started in 1911. I want you to think about that. 1911, God gave a vision to a young man who saw God alone in the prayer room because of a difficult day. And through that vision, scores of people, just in this church, this small church of 47 people touching people around the world. How many more throughout the spread of Elam Fellowship? Fast forward from 1911, about 60 years. And there was a small church in a cow town in western New York. The church was Warsaw Free Methodist Church. The membership had dwindled over the years until their regular attendance was somewhere between 10 and 15 people. On a good Sunday, they would have 20 people there. At the same time, in Batavia, New York, there was a well-known and well-respected businessman who was seeking God, believing that God had something more for this region of New York State. And he'd begun to pray that God would send revival to this area. He had heard about the work through friends and family that was going on in Warsaw, and knew that they were dwindling, and so with permission from his home church in Batavia, he changed his membership to Warsaw Free Methodist Church, and there they began to meet and pray. Nothing had happened. But at that time, there was a musical group called the Cameron Family Singers that had traveled the world that was connected to the Free Methodist denomination. and they had heard about this group and they thought it would be really nice just to have a concert with the Cameron family singers come and sing. What they didn't realize was that during these same years, God had come and poured out His Spirit in such a powerful way that the Cameron family singers had been changed forever. So when they arrived in Warsaw, the church was expecting a nice, proper Scottish concert. Instead, the family began to sing songs about the Holy Spirit which set our feet a dancing of all things. And God poured out His Spirit upon Warsaw Free Methodist Church. People began to be filled with the Spirit, right and left. The pastor wasn't sure what he thought about all of this, so he went to the man that he respected the most and said, what do you think about this? Do you think this is God or not? And that businessman said, I I think it's God. I'm pretty sure this is God. He said, in fact, Pastor, would you like me to pray for you? Even though this businessman had not himself received anything. He prayed for the pastor, and to the pastor's shock, and to the businessman's shock, the pastor was immediately filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues. This caused this businessman to be more and more desperate, more and more frustrated, more and more even angry at God. And he began to cry and say, God, where's mine? God, who is so faithful, didn't leave out Wes Warner. And He poured His Spirit out and touched Wes Warner. And I can remember when we moved to this church in 1991, meeting in the kitchen for prayer before service, and there Wes would pray again and again, God, you did it before, you need to do it again. This church, and this fellowship of which we are part, was born in revival. We were a revival church back then, and we are a revival church now. Through the years, I can remember meeting in prayer meetings in this place, especially I can remember meeting with uh, Doug Gillette and uh, Ralph Evans and Wes Warner down in my office, where my office is right now. I can remember us meeting on Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock. We would meet and we would pray And again and again, Ralph Evans would pray for revival. So much so that it annoyed me. It bothered me. I thought, I want revival too, but we can't do anything about it. That's up to God. Let's get on with the business of the church. And then on Father's Day, 1994, God poured out His Spirit in an amazing way. And we were changed as a people. We have been marked. I I have people to this day who come into this church and after they leave, they will come and they will talk to us and they will say, you guys were a part of what went on back in 1994, weren't you? And I'll say to them, oh no, no. It started in 1974 when God poured out His Spirit upon Warsaw Free Methodist Church. And then this church was birthed out of it. A revival church with a revival hunger And we are still that body of people. Your heritage, whether you understand it or not, if you are connected to this church or you are connected to Elam in some way through classes you've taken or maybe through credentials even, if you are connected to Elam or this church, you are connected by heritage to revival. We are a Christ-centered, worldwide revival fellowship. That's who we were in 1973. And that's who we are today. We seek and believe God for a fresh wind of His Spirit. Revival is what I want to talk to you about today. But what is revival? When you think of revival, what do you think about? Um, Some people tend to think of um, special services where they have a banner out front of the church that says, Revival services this week. And all they mean by that is we have a guest speaker who's coming in and we're going to have some special services. Others tend to think Revival happens when you have a whole drove of people getting saved all at the same time and stuff happens. And is that true? All of that is true. Those are considered revival services. For me though, I like these definitions and I looked up some definitions of famous people who were known for traveling in revival ministry. Uh, The first one is a guy by the name of Richard Owen Roberts. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him, probably not, Uh, he's Birth out of Schenectady, New York. He's the director of International Awakening Ministries. And he said, Revival is an extraordinary movement of God's Spirit resulting in extraordinary results. Extraordinary movement, extraordinary results. Um, Charles Finney, who was a renowned revivalist in the 1800s, said, Revival is when God supernaturally restores the church from her backsliding to her original place of power and holiness. T.S. Rendell, who is the president of Prairie Bible Institute, said, and I love this one revival is the King of Heaven visiting his people in all his regal splendor and glory. That's revival. My favorite pastor of all time, uh, besides my father in law, uh, is Martin Lloyd Jones, who pastored Westminster Cathedral in. Uh, London, England, during the time of World War II. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, a revival then really means days of heaven upon earth. Days of heaven upon earth. And some of you will remember, how many of you remember David Wilkerson? He's probably most well known for the cross and the switchblade in his ministry in New York City to the gangs there. Uh, David Wilkerson had a mentor by the name of Leonard Ravenhill who is well-known in Christian circles. Some of you might have heard of him. Leonard Ravenhill defined revival this way. Uh, This is probably my favorite all time. Revival is when God gets so sick and tired of being misrepresented by the church that he shows up himself to set the record straight. (laughs) Let me say it again. Revival is when God gets so sick and tired of being misrepresented by the church that he shows up himself to set the record straight. I like that. And of course, don't forget, the Bible defines revival. Acts 3.19, he says, Revival is when times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Revival. I don't know how you define revival. I think revival is something better caught than taught. It's something that, though it's hard to define it, you know it when it's there. You feel it in your heart. You might even be confused by the outworkings, but you know there is a dynamic in the room. Something has come into the room. Something has changed. The Spirit of God has shown up. Now, is it revival when souls are saved? Yes, of course. Is it revival when there is phenomena, um, manifestations that happen, well, I think it would be hard put to expect that when the all-powerful, all-living, supernatural God comes down and touches you, that something doesn't happen in your physical bodies. Any more than when you touch an electrical outlet, something will happen. You'll jerk. You'll respond in some way. When God comes and He touches your physical being, something is going to happen. Something's going to give, and I guarantee it's not God. Your body's going to respond to Him. Um, Is it uh, when our hearts are changed and lives are brought back into alignment with His purposes? Yes, all of that is revival. That is our inheritance. That is what God has made us to be. Our church and this fellowship was birthed in revival. But how does it come? How can we be sure of getting revival? Is there something we can do to set the stage for God's suddenly and when i say god suddenly i'm referring to malachi 3 1 when the scripture says the lord whom you seek will suddenly come you seek him you want him you long for him but when he comes it still catches you by surprise becomes differently and more powerfully than you ever anticipated how can we help to set an on-ramp for god's Suddenly. It seems to me that no matter who you read or who you listen to, if I could, I would define it down to three things are essential. Three things. Number one, there has to first be a willingness and desire for it. There has to be a longing for it. Is there something in your heart that longs for God to come in greater power than ever before? To change the very fabric of the society in which we live. Because when revival comes, it's more than just us few holy rollers getting together and being happy. It is when it pours out into the street and something changes around you. Is there something in your heart that desires it? And by the way, with the desire comes the awareness that when God comes, your life will change. You will no longer live the way you used to live. Something will give. There will be uh, the church set apart once again. No longer infiltrated and infected by the world, but actually the church infecting the world. So the first thing that has to be is there has to be a longing and a desire for it. The second thing that has to happen is the recognition that revival comes because God is sovereign. We can't bend His arm. We can't make it do it. God will do what God wants to do in His own time frame. So we have to recognize that when we pray for revival, there is an element of God's sovereignty involved. But the third element, which is crucial, and one of the things that every great revivalist and revival history itself proves out, is that when God's people pray, something happens by way of revival. When God's people actually go after it in prayer, something actually changes. Now we're not talking about just general matter-of-fact perfunctory prayers. Listen to what happened when the early church was born in revival. Look at this. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to be reading. Uh, I'm, I decided um, not to put anything on the screens today. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, there's some in the chairs in front of you. If you want to, you can just listen. That's fine. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem, they being the disciples, after they saw Jesus ascend into heaven following the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They saw Him ascend to heaven. Then the Scripture says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now listen to this: These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And about ten days later, as, as they're gathering in the supper room, praying fervently, praying in one accord for ten days, God pours out His Spirit. The early church is born, and history has been decided by that one element. Everything of which you are a part. Why we're even gathered here today. Why we even call something called church happening is because of what happened in that upper room. The church was born that day when God poured out His Spirit. There would be no church if it weren't for that. All because disciples, along with about 120, gathered in the upper room and they prayed for God to come. He said, go there and you wait for the promise of the Father. Fast forward a few more days into Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there any among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. We're not talking about just generic pray for your food kind of prayers. You know, where you pray really quick like God bless His food so I can eat because I'm hungry. I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm talking about Focused, intense prayers is what brought about a change in the very fabric and atmosphere of the room. They prayed in one accord. That means they had the same mind. They all wanted the same thing. They were all going after, just as you were just a moment ago, praying with one accord for Judah D'Antonio. In the same way, God's people gathered and they prayed in one accord, one mind for God to send His Spirit. They prayed in one accord. The second thing it says is the aspect of radicalness. There was a commitment to their prayers. They stayed there for 10 days. They didn't pray and then say, well, nothing happened. I guess we'll come again and maybe try next week. or "Maybe, maybe, Maybe this isn't the season for it. They stayed there and they waited, believing God was going to do something. They became radical in their prayers. This wasn't a polite time. When... One prayed and the rest slept. And then when they got done, they elbowed their neighbor and said, it's your turn, and they woke up. No, they prayed in one accord with an intensity that was real. They were unified and they were radical. And this paradigm of prayer is found throughout every great revival that has ever hit planet Earth. The concerted, unified, desperate, radical prayers of God's people always preceded every great revival to touch planet Earth. Charles Finney, who I'd mentioned earlier, was perhaps in our area the most well-known revivalist to ever travel this area. He was most known for touching Rochester, New York. So Charles Finney, in 1830, made the decision to come to Rochester and to hold a couple of services. He was known for being a traveling minister, and he came to Rochester intending to hold, as his words say, a few services. I, I believe that's correct, a few services. And when he got here, Seven years later, seven years, he came for a few services, seven years later, 500,000 people had given their life to Christ in Rochester, New York. Crime had diminished by two-thirds in this area. In fact, a well-known newspaper in the area wrote and called Rochester this, the Burned Out Region. And when they talked about burned out, what they meant wasn't something negative. They said every aspect of sin and unholiness had been burned out by the fires of God. Burned out region for God. That's a good testimony. Rochester, New York. Here's what Finney says. There can be no revival if Mr. Amen and Mr. Wet Eyes cannot be found in the audience. Let me say it again because I don't think you heard it. There can be no revival if Mr. Amen and Mr. Wet Eyes cannot be found in the audience. What he's talking about is people who weep before God in an intensity of prayer and those people who are so aggressively on fire that they're ready to go for it and they speak out. He says, don't bring your wimpy little stuff to church. Don't bring your politeness to church. He said, it's time to get serious about things and it affected all of Rochester. Now, how did it happen in Rochester? Is it just because Finney was a great preacher? Finney had been preaching for years, and he hadn't had those kinds of results. What he did was different this time, though. First of all, he set up and he mandated that there be daily prayers in houses around the area at 11 o'clock every single day. People were called to meet in prayer. That was important. But the second thing he did is he had a guy who was himself a well-known minister. And he wanted to travel the circuit and bring God's revival. But he got an eye disease and he went blind. And he couldn't do anything. Couldn't travel. Couldn't do anything. But he had heard about Finney. So he went to Finney and he said, anywhere you go, I will go and I will pray first and believe God for revival. His name was Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash would go before Finney. Finney traveled all around Rochester. All these little towns. Including out in this area. And he would go, but before he would go, he would tell Daniel Nash, and Daniel Nash would go to that area a couple of weeks ahead of time. And he would rent a room. Sometimes there wasn't even a room. He went into one location. They didn't even have a room. They said, we have a cellar, a dirt floor cellar, and you can stay there. So, Daniel Nash went there. In fact, he prayed so fervently that he was groaning. And the homeowner knew that he was there for Finney, called Finney and said, I think there's a problem. The man who said he's here for you is down in my basement groaning. And Finney said, No, it's all okay. He's crying out to God. Daniel Nash would go and he would pray. In fact, Finney so counted on Daniel Nash's prayer that when Daniel Nash died, Finney quit traveling. He knew that without Daniel Nash's prayer, he would have no power anymore. Prayers of the saints going before. Evan Roberts, who was used by God so mightily in the Welsh Revival in 1904, was asked in the midst and the height of revival, what's the secret of revival? He shouted out loud, shouted, secret, there's no secret. It's always been the same. Ask and you will receive. Ask. There's no receiving if you don't ask. Jonathan Edwards, used powerfully here in America for the Great Awakening in 1734, in which, by the way, the entire nation was turned to God in the Great Awakening. The entire nation turned to God. He said this, and by the way, you'd have to understand that the Puritans tended where two words would be sufficient, they decided that 30 words were better. So here's what Jonathan Edwards said. It is God's will, through His wonderful grace, that the prayers of His saints should be one of the great principal means for carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something very great to accomplish for His church, it is will, it is His will that they should precede it by the extraordinary prayers of His people. Prayers preceding every great move. In other words, every revival throughout history. And every great revivalist has come to the same conclusion. No prayer, no revival. Great prayer, great expectation of revival. No prayer, no revival. We're talking today and throughout this month about revival. How this church was born and what is in the fiber of our being, the DNA of who we are. We have been touched by the Almighty God And we can never go back to the common and the everyday. I don't want the normal. I want God to show up in power where it's hard to minister in His presence just like it was hard for the early priests to minister before God. And In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, which is a picture of what's going to happen at the end of time, every time you read of the elders in the book of Revelation, where are they? They're on their faces before God. Because every time they look up and see God, they fall down again. That would be a good revival. Where when God shows up, stuff happens. Not just that we fall down. That's not what I'm after. I don't care whether you ever laugh again or whether you ever fall down. That's not my issue. My issue is that God come in power and something change. In us and in the surrounding region. You know, we, we get into so much competition among the churches. Well, this church does it this way, and that church, well, you know, that church is a little bit, you know, I don't know about them. They're, they're a little bit more proper. And this church, you should never go to that church, because I don't even know if they're a Christian church anymore. Do you know there are enough people in this community that if God poured out His Spirit, every church in this town would be filled to capacity and more? It's not a competition for more people. It's a competition for God's presence come in power. And if God would pour out His Spirit upon the Free Methodist Church, Valley Chapel, then wonderful, there will be overflow to us. If God will pour out His Spirit upon United Church or the United Methodist Church, I don't care. Let Him pour it out on the Catholic Church. I don't care as long as He pours out His Spirit. But my prayer is, God, don't forget us. Don't forget us. This is how You birthed us and this is what we want to continue on. I've read this to you before. This is by Dr. J. Edwin Orr, but I love this. I'm going to read it again. I don't care how many times I read it. Every time I read it, I am excited about the history of revival that has been part of the warp and woof of our nation. Our very nation was born this way, with people desperate to seek God and to find Him. This is what it says. Not many people realize that in the wake of the American Revolution, there was a moral slump, drunkenness, was epidemic. Out of the population of approximately 5 million people in America at that time, 6% were confirmed drunkards, and they were burying 15,000 of those drunkards every year. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of American settlements, women weren't safe to go out at night for fear of being assaulted. Bank robberies were an almost daily occurrence in our nation. And what about the churches? The largest denomination at that time was the Methodists and they reported that they were losing more members than they were gaining. The second largest denomination was the Baptists and they said they were having their most wintry season ever. The Presbyterians met in general assembly to deplore the ungodliness of our country and the Congregationalists who were the strongest in New England. A typical church was one like that pastored by Reverend Samuel shepherd of Lenox, Massachusetts. Karen and I just had to go over to Salem, Massachusetts to meet with John and Joanne Legere, and we drove right by Lenox, Massachusetts. He was a pastor there at a congregational church, and he said this, in 16 years, 16 years, we have not taken in one young person into the fellowship. In 16 years. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed merging with the Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit his job altogether because there was nothing for him to do. But these were the worst. The Chief Justice of the U.S. at the time was John Marshall. He wrote to the Bishop of Virginia and he said, "'The Church is too far gone to ever be redeemed.'" This is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. The Church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. Voltaire, who was an Enlightenment, writer at the time, well-known, said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years' time. And Thomas Paine preached that cheerfully all over America. Kenneth Scott Lauterette, who is a historian, a church historian who's well-respected, I have his books downstairs, he said this, it seemed as if Christianity was about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. The church felt like they had their backs to the wall, and the wall was crumbling. How did God change the situation to the point where we're here today and we're still meeting in church, where we're still the church? He did it through what was called Concerts of Prayer. Concerts of Prayer. There was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh, Scotland, called John Erskine, who wrote a a memorial book called Pleading with the People of Scotland and Elsewhere to Unite in Prayer for a Revival of Religion. He sent a copy of that little booklet to Jonathan Edwards in New England Jonathan Edwards was so moved by that book that he wrote a letter in response. The letter grew so long that Jonathan Edwards finally published it as a book. This is the title of the book, by the way. This is not the book. This is the title of the book. A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement, that's all in one accord, and Visible Union of All God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of God's Kingdom. Jonathan Edwards' book was distributed and it found itself into the hands of a man by the name of Isaac Bacchus, who was a Baptist pastor. The year was 1794. The conditions were at their worst. He sent out a prayer for a plea for prayer after the fashion of which Jonathan Edwards was encouraging. And you gotta remember how bad it was. Harvard. Harvard was a university that was started as a seminary to train people for the ministry. At that time in Harvard's history, they could only find one Christian on the entire campus. A hundred years earlier, it had been started as a seminary to train people for the ministry, only one Christian on the entire campus. Princeton, which was considered a much more Christian college, had two. Two. And all but five of the members of their class were a part of what was called the uh, filthy speech club of the day. Students rioted in the streets burning Bibles as their expression of disgust for the church. Christians on campuses around the United States were so few that they had to communicate with one another in code lest they be found out to be a Christian and be persecuted, and some of them even killed. That's how hard it was when Isaac Backus received that little booklet from Jonathan Edwards that called for people to pray. He sent out that request to ministers across every denomination in the U.S. The churches knew they had to do something. The Presbyterian Synods of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania adopted this plan for united prayer across all of their denominations. Bishop Francis Asbury, which some of you will know from Asbury uh, College down in Kentucky, adopted it for all the Methodists, the Baptist Association, the Congregational, of the Reformed, the Moravians, all of them adopted it until soon America was interlaced with people who were praying all across this nation. It wasn't long before God began to send revival to this land once again. It broke out first in Connecticut, then in Massachusetts, and finally it reached the borders of Kentucky. Even in Kentucky, which was known as a wilderness of sin and adultery, even there revival hit. Peter Cartwright, who was a Methodist evangelist, said that when his father settled in Logan County, Kentucky, Logan County was known as Rogues Harbor. And it was called that because if anyone had committed a crime anywhere, as long as they could get across the border into Kentucky, into that area, Logan County, they would be safe from prosecution because there hadn't been one crime that had been adjudicated for over five years. It was a lawless area. Into that area came a Scottish Irish Presbyterian minister by the name of James McGrady. James McGrady was known for one thing. He was so ugly that he was hard to look at. He was deformed. But people assumed that if somebody was deformed and they wanted to stand in front of you and speak, they must have something worth hearing. So people would come and listen to him. And James McGrady began to preach. But James McGrady first decided that praying once a week wasn't enough. So he upped it and he said, I want prayer every single day. And revival began to be poured out in Kentucky. God began to move. 11,000 people came to one communion service that James McGrady held. 11,000 people. These concerts of prayer became the turning point of our nation. More than 600 colleges were founded during that time as a way of training people to understand God's bigger world, but with God as the center of it. Our whole society was changed. Abolition was abolished during that time. There was a sense of people doing away with all this drunkenness. Slavery was uh, attacked at that time, saying, this is not right, all born out of this great awakening that swept America. But by the middle of the 19th century, just 50, 60, 70 years later, things had already begun to wane in America. God raised up a man, one man, by the name of James Lamphere. James Lamphere was in New York City, and he wanted God to pour out revival. So he went to a little local church called the North Dutch Reformed Church, and he asked them if he could actually have a prayer meeting in their church once a week. And they agreed to let him. So he put a little sandwich board sign out front and said, Prayer from noon to one every Wednesday. He went up to the third floor where they had allowed him to meet, and he climbed to the third floor waiting for people to come, and no one came. And he prayed, and he prayed. Half an hour went by. Finally, one person began to clump up the stairs. Over the next half hour, four more came, until by the end of the session, six people had gathered to pray. One one week later, 14 came. Then 23. Then 40 some. And pretty soon, the North Dutch Reformed Church was filled to capacity with people who were praying for revival. And then it spread down the road to the Methodist Church, then to the Baptist Church. In 1858, every church in New York City, every church was filled to capacity with people who were praying. Horace Greeley, who was a famed uh, newspaper man at that time, sent out one of his reporters to try to ascertain how many people were praying. And they had called for prayer now not from noon to one, but from noon to two. Businesses were shutting down so that their people could go and pray. There were actually bells ringing on street corners saying it's time to pray. He sent a reporter out to try to figure out how many people were praying. And in that two-hour period, he could only make it to 12 meetings and he counted 6,100 men who were praying, seeking God for revival. Finally, finally, the Baptists had so many people who were getting saved that their little one man baptistries weren't enough. So they went down to the lake and they chopped the ice away so that he could do mass baptisms. It hit Chicago finally. It had spread far and wide. It hit Chicago. And they had so many people getting saved that they didn't have enough workers. And so workers were coming right and left to try to teach these young people about Christ. One young man came to the superintendent in his church and said, I want to be able to teach Sunday school. And they said, we have a long list waiting, but when there's an opening, we'll let you know. And this young man said, no, I don't want to wait. I want it now. He said, well then, go down to the river where all those hooligans are. Get them saved and you teach them. And after a year, if they're decent, you bring them back and I'll let you teach them here. His name was Dwight L. Moody. And that's exactly what he did. And that was the beginning of his ministry. How did that affect the churches in the area? In 1857, Trinity Episcopal Church had 127 members. In 1860, just three years later, they had 1,400 members. One guy, I love this guy, elderly guy, Pastor J.J. Cheeks in Paducah, Kentucky. He said this, God, give me souls or I die. In one year, he led over a thousand people to Christ. God was on the move. And then 1904, in Wales, uh, my wife's home country, there was this uh, Welsh miner who wasn't very good at anything. He wasn't good at mining and he wasn't good at speaking. But in prayer one day, God gave him a vision that revival was going to come to the land. And so he began to preach it everywhere. He preached it so vehemently that he was renting a room from an elderly lady and he would preach it to himself in his room so loudly that his elderly landlady evicted him. He wasn't preaching to anybody. He's preaching to himself because no one else would listen. Finally, he thought, well, what I need to do is I need to go get Bible training. So he went to Bible school. And there he heard a man by the name of Seth Joshua. Seth Joshua said, it's time for God to bring revival to our land. We've heard about it in America. We want it here. Now the truth is, revival had already begun to wane in America, but they had heard what God had done through the Great Awakening, through the Second Great Awakening. And he says, we want it here. And so his prayer was simply, bend us, O Lord. Bend us, O Lord. Evan Roberts heard that prayer. And as a simple coal miner, got on his knees and said, God, bend me that I might bend this nation to you. That night in prayer, he felt like God said, you're to go and preach revival fire everywhere. He went to the president of the school and said, I feel like God said to me to go and preach revival. Was that God or was that the devil? The president, who's a very wise man, said, the devil never tells anybody to go and preach that kind of message, so go ahead and be released. He went to his hometown, and there he went to his pastor and said, I feel like God's given me a message of revival. Can I preach it at church? And the pastor said, no. He asked him again. The pastor said, no. He asked him again. The pastor said, no. He asked him again, and finally the pastor said, all right, I'll give you a Wednesday evening, midweek service when nobody comes. He thought he would be preaching for the service, but the pastor decided at the last minute, no, you're not going to preach at the service. He had the whole service, and when he got all done with the service, he said, by the way, we have in our midst young Evan Roberts. If any of you would like to stay and hear him, he's willing to stay and actually speak to you. Seventeen listeners stayed. And the history records that as they listened to Evan Roberts, they said our hearts began to burn within us for revival, including the pastor. The pastor invited him back the next night and called for special services. Within 30 days, 37,000 people had come to Christ in that little church. 37,000 people. Within five months, 100,000 people had been swept into the kingdom of God. Welsh newspapers quit reporting the news and they began to report who was getting saved that week. Colleges closed down so that students could march in the streets singing hymns on their way to church. Children. Children weren't left out. They began to hold their own meetings in their yards and in barnyards. Holding their own meetings, preaching to the animals. You think it's funny, but so many people got saved that these coal miners who were so filthy-mouthed, didn't know any other way but using cursing to direct their animals, They stopped cursing and the animals didn't even know what instructions to obey anymore. They had to retrain their mules. There was so little crime that judges actually sent out policemen to begin singing as quartets in churches around the area. In fact, the only concern they had, this is true, the only concern they had during this time was for former saloon owners who had gotten saved and closed down their business and now they had no means of living. And so they were praying regularly that they would find jobs that they could make a living for them and their families. And all the while, reports were coming back to America. God was on the move. It hit uh, on the west coast of America, a little place, a little stable, literally a stable called Azusa Street. And there they began to meet in prayer. And they got on their knees. The pastor of the church was a black man, which was unheard of in that day. He was a black man. And the way in which he would pray is he would get behind the pulpit, which was hollow. And he would stick his head in the pulpit and he would begin to wail before God. Believing that God would once again visit America. The outpouring that happened at Azusa Street, which is known as the Pentecostal outpouring, is why you're here today. It's why a trucker used to travel this road when it was a dirt road. And he would see this field as an empty oat field, wheat field, whatever it was. Tom, you would know. What was it? Wheat. He would see this field as a wheat field. And he would walk this field and he would begin to prophesy over this field that one day there would be a Pentecostal work of God right here on this property. That's why you're here today. You were born in revival. You were born for revival. That's your inheritance. That's who we are as a people. During this great awakening that happened in America in the beginnings of 1900, 1904, 1905, of all the universities in America, they were saddened because there were still 25% of the students who were not Christians. They were saddened because only one quarter were still not Christians. In Atlantic City, New Jersey, with a population of 50,000 people at the time, they bewailed the fact and they made it their focus of prayer that there were still 50 people who were not saved. 50 out of 50,000. Stores closed from 11 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon to allow their workers every single day to go to prayer meetings. Over 20 million people came to Christ during this time. Revival is a sovereign act of God. But it requires two things from us. A longing and a desperation. And a willingness to pray. What is prayer? Uh, Prayer very simply is this. And again, you, you come up with a better definition. Prayer is the humble acknowledgement that God can do more in one moment than I can do in a lifetime of well-intentioned efforts. God can do more in one moment than my lifetime of well-intentioned efforts. One moment. I've told you about the history of America and the state of our nation. The truth is we're not all that far away right now. Our nation is about as divided as it has ever been. And what we need is not a new president in the White House. Nor do we need a new Congress. What we need is revival. That's what we need as America. That's what this world needs is for America once again to be set ablaze and let those fires spread across the world. God gave a vision to a young man, Ivan Quay Spencer. And he said there would be times of waning, decrease, diminishment, of supernatural expression. But then the fires would be lit again, and then the end would come. I want to be a part of that end time fire. I hope that's in your heart. That's what we are born for. That's what we're about for the month of June. What we're talking about is revival, but not just so that you can have a month's emphasis, but so that something can be birthed inside of you, that you could understand we as a people have been touched. We have been changed because God came into our midst. I knew God. I'd preached. i been a pastor for years and years and years. I knew God. That was not the issue. But when God came in 1994 and He began to touch us, something shifted and changed in me forever. I will never be the same person. And I don't want this church to ever be the same. I don't want us to go back to the old days. I don't want neat services. I would rather people say I'm uncomfortable because I'm not sure what's going on. I would rather be able to go to an elder and say, do you think this is God or not? Because I'm a little bit leery of all this stuff over here. I'd rather have people in our church come and say, how do you explain this? And I say, I don't. I don't get it. But I see fruit. It doesn't take this whole church on their knees praying. It might only take You. You. That's what he did with Jeremiah Lamphere in the North Dutch Reformed Church. One person who was willing to get on his knees and pray. One person to seek God and to believe for a difference. Wouldn't it be something if on a Saturday night or perhaps even an early Sunday morning, people chose to gather and pray that our services would be lit afire? That their pastors would be much better than they've ever been before? That they would speak way beyond themselves? but that God would show up. In fact, wouldn't it be something if God would show up in so much power we didn't even have to preach because God was already saying things to us. Lives were being turned around. People were willing to meet and pray at homes they were willing to connect with friends. Without the pastor and elders having to set some kind of program or trying to generate enthusiasm, what if people just actually began to catch the vision? God, what we need is revival. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to annoy you, God, just like the importunate judge until you send revival. This was the prayer that Evan Roberts taught his people to pray over and over again during the Welsh Revival in 1904. Number one. Send the Spirit now for Jesus Christ's sake. Number two, send the Spirit powerfully now for Jesus Christ's sake. Number three, send the Spirit more powerfully now for Jesus Christ's sake. Number four, send the Spirit still more powerfully now for Jesus Christ's sake. In other words, it's never enough, and there's always more of God. Would you bow your heads with me? I know I've gone longer the normal, but I wanted this to be the on-ramp to what we are about for this month. I wanted to, if it were possible, to awaken in you something that I believe is there. Perhaps it's even been dormant for a while, but there's a seed of the divine within you Maybe you're here today and you don't even know Christ. You're just interested in it. You're curious about the things of Christ. You're curious about church. But I believe that because you're created in the image of God, there's something even inside of you. And God wants to blow upon that and bring that to life. Is it possible that you might be the key in the cog to make a difference? That in generations to come, it won't be Isaac Bacchus. It won't be Jeremiah Lamphere. It will be your name who will be remembered as one who contrary to the flow of the society around them, contrary to even the church flow, you got on your knees and you prayed and you didn't give up and God sent revival. And it changed. Not just your life and not just this church not even just this community, it changed the state and this nation and ultimately the world. If that's something that's born within your heart, you're saying, I want that, I long for that, I'm willing to pay whatever price, whatever it takes, I am willing to drop that coin of my life So that God would know we are united in our desire for revival. If that's in your heart, I want to ask you just to stand where you are and just say, I want this, I want it. Don't stand just because somebody else does. It might not be in every one of your heart, and I understand that. I stand because it is in my heart. I long for this. I want it more than I want anything else. I saw what God did throughout history. I experienced history myself. In 94, was some of it emotionalism and flesh? Absolutely. But a whole lot of it was God. And it was good. It was life-giving. And I see the fruit in people's lives. God, I want it again. Father, as these stand, awakening in their own heart, their desire, their desperation for you, I'm asking you to cause that little ember to erupt and become as volcanic as what's going on around the world even right now. That the lava flow of it would begin to spread far and wide and it would burn hotter than they ever anticipated. Let that seed within them flourish. And Lord, in saying them, never leave me out. I want to be a part, God. I want in. I want to be a part of another great move of Your Spirit. I want to taste again the power of Your glory. I want to see You, Father, in all of Your magnificence. I want to feel Your touch. I ask, God, that You would move within our hearts and that it wouldn't have to be something orchestrated. It wouldn't have to be something where we have to have planned meetings. Those are fine and we might well do that but it's not required because we're going to find a way to do it anyways. We're going to pray. When we're out walking, we're going to pray, God, send revival. When we look at the houses in this community, we're going to think, God, what could you do if you sent revival to this house? I don't even know who lives here, but they need you, Jesus. Everywhere we go, Father, let revival be the resounding theme of our hearts. And may we never be content with less than that. We long for You, Father. This nation needs You. We know that. We see the political, the philosophic, the economic issues going on around us. We know this nation needs You. We know the world needs You. But Father, we need You. We're not all that we should be. We know who You've called us to be. We know who You've declared us to be. Let us live that way in truth. Let righteousness go forth as a banner from our lives. That as we walk down the streets, it says people who have been set afire by You. That that is more important than anything else in our lives. That the presence of Almighty, living God would dwell within us and erupt within us. Come in power, I pray, Father. Let us never be the same because of what You are doing in our midst and what You are birthing even here today. Let every message this month be a further incitement to go farther than what we ever thought possible. Pour out Your Spirit. Surprise us once again with Your suddenly. And Father, we will always give You the glory. It won't be about manifestations. We will honor You in those. But it won't be about them. We're not looking for specific manifestations. We're not looking for specific ways that it's going to happen. We're saying, God, however you want to do it, just do it, we pray. Let us be a part of this. And as the end of time draws nearer, and every heart and soul will find itself having to confront you, because every one of us will die one day and we will stand before you, the judge of all things. Lord, let it be with a sense that we have known you in our lives and we have walked with you as you have touched us. Lord, let it be said in Warsaw, this town of about 5,000 people or so, that there's none who are unbelievers. Not just Christians because they go to church, not just Christians because they live in, quote, Christian nation, but Christians because they're on fire for you. Let that be our focus, our desire, our longing, our prayer. And we commit ourselves to paying whatever price in order to see your sovereign act of revival come in our midst. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Have a great day.